Hi, and welcome to the State of Shakespeare. I'm Jim Elliott. And I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And today on the program, we have Susan Hayward. Hello, Susan. Hello, friends. Oh, man. Oh, man. I just love the way you answered. Hi, friends. That is so... <laughs> I think in another life, I was a Quaker. <laughs> like, I dig them so hard. <laughs> So good to have you here, Susan. Yeah. So good to be here. In this COVID time. Uh, Susan Hayward is a classically trained actress. She studied at various schools, including the Freedom Theater and Moscow School of Dramatic Art, receiving her BFA in drama from Carnegie Mellon. Uh, most recognized for her role as Tamika Ward in the final two seasons on the Orange is the New Black, she has appeared on other notable television programs, such as HBO's Vinyl, uh, PlayStation's first original series, Powers, and most recently was seen opposite Edie Falco in the CBS drama, Tommy. Her stage work includes Juliet in Romeo and Juliet and Ophelia in Hamlet. She was last seen on stage as Rose Granger Weasley in the original Broadway cast of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Her latest film work can be seen on Netflix's The Incredible Jessica James. Wow, Susan, you have done a wide variety of stuff. Pretty impressive. <laughs> Thanks. If, you know, if they call me, I pick up the phone and say, yes, yes. <laughs> where, where, where am I going? Where do you want me? Yes, I will do it. Yes. How long has it been since you've done Shakespeare? Gosh, I was thinking about that right before the call. I think it's been over 10 years. Yeah. Are you, are you hungry to, to, to try to play them again? Or, or do you think you've played out that string? I don't think I've played out that strain. I, I'm hoping that I'm growing into an, a new uh, character, basically. You know, when I, I worked at American Shakespeare Center for almost two years, and so I was fresh out of school, young. So, you know, in a production of Macbeth, I played everybody's son. And, you know, I played princesses and Juliet's and, and Ophelia's. And I'm hoping now that, you know, if I can go back, it will be to play adults. <laughs> adults might be a, a nice shift. How has your perspective on Shakespeare changed in, in the 10 years since you've last visited playing? Oh gosh, you know, it's even been a larger arc than that. I fell in love with Shakespeare when I was a kid. I was maybe 12 or 13 and I got to, oh, by the way, that Freedom Theater that was in Philadelphia, I realized the way I wrote it, it could have sounded like Freedom Theater in Moscow. Um, <laughs> That was in North Philly, and we studied Taming of the Shrew, and that scene where Petruchio and, and Catherine meet, and they're so naughty, they're so bad, and they're saying all these, you know, very sexual things. I remember being a 13-year-old going, what? <laughs> I, we could say what? So there was a really long love affair with the language and how uh, decadent it could be, and... Then I don't know, something happened with the, for me, a lot of the colorism stuff, like a lot of the dark is bad and light is good, kind of started to crop up and I started to become aware of it. And it, it's like a matrix pill, you know, as soon as you take it and you see that in one place, you go to the texts and you start to kind of see it everywhere. And, you know, the more our society has become aware of racial differences and cultural cues that we kind of pick up without realizing it, the more I come to the text and just like had a tunnel vision, I couldn't quite see anything else. 
Yeah, it, well, I, I find that very interesting. Garrett and I were just having a brief conversation about that because as educators, it's definitely on the forefront of our uh, consciousness at this point. Um, I think it's interesting because I've been trying to figure out how to approach my students about this. And one of the things that I kind of feel good about in terms of it, the Shakespearean productions that have happened since the 1970s, really, where they, it, Shakespeare productions have been on the forefront of casting um, and gender blind casting and race blind casting. And I really find comfort in that because Shakespeare is so malleable in terms mm. of the casting. I mean, you know, we've interviewed Lisa Volpe who does an all female version. Um, Deborah Ann Bird, who does an all African-American version of Othello, I think recently. Um, and so in production, Shakespeare is certainly incredibly progressive. Mm. Well, I don't think we can dance around the fact that Shakespeare definitely has a bias when it comes to skin color. The, the examples in the text are so abundant. So wh what do we do with that? What do we do with that in this day and age? You know, I think a lot of it is being able to have the conversation. You know, I, uh, particularly the United States, we don't like to look at that, talk about it. We like to say, that time is over. We're good. And you know, those productions that, you know, I've let the colorblind casting in the forefront of that, I think they can also be places where it's safe to talk about. It's safe to talk about our biases it's because, you know, Shakespeare was a product of his time and culture, just, just the same way we are. And I think that's one of the things that I found really difficult because I'd be in, at least I'd see Shakespeare productions and see talkbacks and then kind of look around like, are we not going to talk about this? We're going to talk about everything else. Um, and so I, I would hope that the same way Taming of the Shrew, for me, was the beginning of a frank conversation about sexuality. That is something else that our culture doesn't necessarily like to talk about and, 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 ed and like get education on. I would hope that these plays could be a place to keep talking about that, you know, that, that thing that we really want to dance around instead. It would be nice to think that. I mean, I don't think. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that the plays want to be a vehicle for perpetuating bias. I don't think that they necessarily want to be, but yeah, so. there's no question that they can be because it is simply so that it, like I said, it's so pervasive throughout the plays. Yeah. And it's tough. You know, I, I, you know, there, there's all this progressivism. There is this opportunity for stretching, uh, the text, and then sometimes it's what people are familiar with too, right? Like there's also people have to fill seasons and get butts in seats. And it's like, oh, we know this place, so we'll go see it rather than having that slot filled by a, a, a risk, a different playwright, someone who we maybe, maybe don't know. Um, so like, like they're not necessarily, they're not either one, right? They're not these bastions of progressivism <laughs> and they're also not um uh, it's just a play like it, it, so we put all this stuff on top of it and sometimes need it to be more more than it actually is well it's nice that, it's nice when plays serve their function of being a catalyst for conversation and yeah and fun and entertaining i i admit that i brought the weight to the conversation in the first place but sometimes there's all this stuff happening it's like all this political stuff on top of it that the play kind of chokes a little bit like the human fun part the part that this is a archetype of a kind of person that exists in the in 
in humanity, that kind of stuff can get choked out sometimes. Yeah, it needs to be fun, fun and right, sexy. Right, right. It should be, it's, you know, yeah, absolutely it should be. Um, uh, and I think some of the best, the best uh, theater is that kind of theater that is fun and you're laughing and having a good time following a story, whether it's a love story or comedy or a tragedy. But then, you know, as you're walking home, you say, or in a talk back, you say, what's going on with that? And it, you know, yeah. it just gives you food for thought. Um, you know, I think so. There's a documentary that, because uh, at heart I am still a Shakespeare nerd, always will be. <laughs> I watch this thing maybe once a year. It's Kiss Me Petruchio. It's on YouTube. It's uh, basically a documentary that follows Meryl Streep and Raul Julia in their production of Taming the Shrew. And the first time I watched the documentary, I brought all of my assumptions about Taming the Shrew. I brought all of my, it's sexist, it's this, it's that, I brought all of that. And to watch, you know, the two of them and their director and the audience really ask questions and while having as much fun as humanly possible, also seeing this deeper story about a really rich brat who has used her intellect to terrorize people, meeting her match and learning a, a lesson that's not necessarily about time or society. It's about learning how to be gracious which blew my mind, I blew my mind. I was like, if every Shakespeare production could do something like that, like something that human, I, I'd never leave the theater, never. You bring up Taming of the Shrew and you've chosen to do something from Taming of the Shrew. I did. Um, so this is Susan Hayward doing Catherine from The Taming of the Shrew, act four, scene three. The more my wrong, the more his spite appears. What? Did he marry me to famish me? Beggars that come into my father's door upon entreaty have a present alms. If not elsewhere, they meet with charity. But I, who never knew how to entreat, nor never needed that I should entreat, am starved for meat, giddy for lack of sleep, with oaths kept waking and with brawling fed. And that which spites me more than all these wants, he does it under name of perfect love. As who should say, if I should sleep or eat for deadly sickness or else present death, I prithee go and get me summer past. I care not what, so it be wholesome food. Oh, terrific. Sure. I love the way you say the word O-A-T-H-S. <laughs> Especially his, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. I love you, I love you. No, I'm doing this for you. I owe thy brum, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Like all of those vowels can, you know, you can put so much in there. So what is happening? He's being starved? She's uh, been married off to a clown and a fool. And he's carted her off from her very comfortable living situation at home with her father where she ruled the roost. And even though he says he loves her, he doesn't let her sleep or eat. He forces her into deep, deep discomfort. And Catherine is a woman who's never been uncomfortable and she hates it. So why does she put up with it? Uh, she, well, in this moment, she doesn't. <laughs> in this moment, you know, she's saying, I don't understand, I cannot rule over him and she's speaking to a servant and i think it's it's her like understanding that sometimes you have to ask for things nicely you know she says entreat three times um really in, in the speech. Too, yeah. and 
and the the last two lines, you know, she she tries out that word I I I pretty. Um, well, you know, this time I I didn't I didn't play that up, but I think she's someone who's learning how to be gracious, learning how to ask, and it's going terribly. It's a love story, so it all ends up that they end up together. They do. How does that How does that work? I mean, you know, for me, a lot of it is context. This play is written in a culture where women did not have rights at all. It's also uh, written from the point of view of a rich woman, uh, a, a very comfortable rich girl. And so the idea that in this social contract, if you're a woman, you're rich, you're comfortable, a man is taking care of you, there's a certain amount of graciousness that is required of you, whether um, you want to be gracious or not. And I think the way it works in context at the end is that it's a lesson of a woman saying, you know what, I do have certain strengths that this culture does not value, but I can afford to grow, I can afford to be gracious, I can afford to respect people, I can afford to, literally afford to, right, right, right. <laughs> be nice and be kind. The other thing that somebody pointed out to me most recently, it was a student, we were having this conversation, and that she likes to point out that it's a play within a play. Yes. Um, and nobody ever does th- does it that way because the beginning part of Taming the Shrew is awful. The Christopher Clark <laughs> part is like as bad as it gets. So, so everybody just cuts it and does, does the play within the play. But it is a play within a play. I'm always curious about the things we think we don't need. In the production of Romeo and Juliet that I did, uh, the director had cut it before we started rehearsal. And he ended up cutting this, I don't know, maybe six or eight line piece in the, um, the morning after scene between Romeo and Juliet. And it's all this really arcane language of like turtle doves and things rapping in each other. And I was like, yeah, ditch it, screw it. And it was kind of hard to, it, it took a lot of work to get through the second half of the play. And then I went back and realized it's all embedded stage direction of the two of them hugging each other. They're saying all of that while holding on to each other for dear life. And it's this beautiful, like, quiet moment of the two of them finally being, and then being pulled apart and kept apart for another two acts. And I, like, when I realized that, I was so devastated that we had chucked it. That we, like, <sighs> but I can understand wanting to cut archaic language, but... Yeah, like, we don't get it. Or, or what do we replace it with, right? Like, okay, maybe... Maybe we cut that language, but we have a little musical interlude where it's quiet and the two of them are hugging, you know, that kind of, the plays can, they are elastic that way. They can, they can withstand that kind of playing. I'd like to think that they've gone beyond the Elizabethan era and all that that stood for. Um, uh, And there is a translation project happening. And so. Oh my, please keep it decadent. That's my only question. Like, you know, all this talk about, you know, Americans only use so many of the, so many of the words in the English language. There's so much good stuff in there. Yeah. Is that one of the things that you fell in love with? I mean, you, you mentioned that there was some, you know, body references and all that stuff, but, and then you mentioned the language. So the language is something that you fell in love with? It is. It is. I, um, you know, I was a bookworm uh, really early. So I read a lot. And then the joy of getting to say those words or hearing them, it's a really, it, it, it was a really visceral experience for me. And I feel like when it's, 
done right, it's a visceral experience for everyone. Did you come by that, that visceral sensation yourself or was someone there with you? As your- oh, that was a teacher. Oh yeah, those were the teachers at Freedom Theater in, in North Philly. I think they chose the scene between Catherine and Petruchio for the naughty language, you know, but be able to say a joint stool and that kind of aggressive, pointed energy that middle schoolers have whirling inside their bodies and desperately need an outlet for, right, you know, right. or, or the permission to say, come sit on me, come sit on it. Like, and this is when like, you know, uh, Bart Simpson was saying, you know, eat my shorts, man. Like, all right. that, that, <laughs> like it all lives in the same place. I, you know, I see people now who, who maybe weren't bookworms or maybe don't have the access to theater and art and it can be hard people to express themselves because they're looking for the word and it's not right there going going back i'm just i was just curious now now we have to go back to Catherine. you know we we've sort of danced around the subjects you know she's she is a captive and she's sort of come around this way um here i have two questions about doing it in this day and age first of all should we be doing the play anymore at at this point i mean when I'm out drinking with friends and I've had more than my allotted two, <laughs> I sometimes I get a little wild and I say, hiatus, 10 years, nothing. 10 years, no Shakespeare production anywhere. We need a break. We need to go live other lives, have, a, have language affairs with other playwrights, you know, and then come back and see who we are, what the plays can show us, like as a mirror to nature, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in, in one sense, my answer is yes and no. Like maybe we need a break, maybe we need a break. And then we can come back to it because they're not gonna go anywhere. Uh, that, that, that is really interesting. And I would, now I'm thinking that something else, which is you came out of school and one of your first jobs, it sounds like was at the American Shakespeare Center. It was one of my very first. And that, I, I think a lot of people could say that. I know I could say that my first job was acting Shakespeare. Um, yeah. uh, the Shakespeare Festival. Um, and so that kind, of, that kind of employment for young actors mm-hmm. is terrific. And it's one of the true. reasons we do Shakespeare is because it's free and we don't have to pay for it. I, I would say, let's figure out what, what do we replace that with for young actors who are coming out of here. You know, like, yes, that's right. exciting to me. We have wonderful playwrights who, who you know, we could do the same. Garrett, we're gonna have to expand our, our, our canon Oh my gosh, I've been obsessed about Cat on a Hot Tin Roof for like the last three months. Every now and then a play will kind of come and visit with me and it'll just sit and I'll meditate on it and kind of see it from different angles. And Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, there's so much in there about, you know, class that oh. we Americans pretend we don't do class. We're egalitarian. What do you mean? Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> You know, and we can skip over that stuff in Shakespeare. But But let's flip the coin for a second. Let's just say, as is probably the case, that Shakespeare's not going anywhere. Uh, We're not going to stop producing Shakespeare in the next 10 years. So, and then some intrepid director says, hey, I want to do Taming of the Shrew. Um, How would you approach it in this day and age? Mm. Well, I think I was a little spoiled by my work at American Shakespeare Center. I have to admit the practical production values that I found there were pretty also intoxicating. They recreated uh, the indoor playhouse that Shakespeare's company would have worked in 
And so when we did the play, it was a thrust stage. You know, there's audience on three sides. There were stools on stage where audience members sat on stage. Oh, cool. Uh, the lights were up. So there wasn't this separation between the action on stage and the audience. Um, direct address was employed. So sometimes there was some text that was actually addressed to audience members. And that kind of open atmosphere, conversation, uh, danger, a little, a little risky, right? Because you, you empower the audience and you make them a part of making sure this thing works rather than putting them in the dark. You guys be quiet. We're going to talk. We're going to have all the lights on us. And when we're done, you clap and you go home. <laughs> you know, so I would be interested in shifting the production to probably be a little closer to the conditions that Shakespeare was writing for. And you, would you take the, the point of view that Catherine's this spoiled rich kid who's never really experienced? I'd start there, and not to get too heavy, but America maybe has a little uh, listening to do on that score. We've been rich for a real long time, and how we show up in the world. Uh, folks can tell. Maybe some lessons to learn there. That, that, I, I like this. This is interesting. Oh, I had a question too. Yeah, yeah. I think in your podcast with Shireen, uh, you mentioned that you were working on Hamlet with your students at the time. Someone was working on Hamlet with students at the time. And I was like, ooh, how did that go? I mean, Hamlet's another one that haunts me sometimes. Here's the thing about Hamlet when I'm teaching is that I try to steer them away from it. Um, <laughs> what do you mean? Well, simply because mo that, that's usually one of the two or three plays that an, you know, a non-knowledgeable Shakespearean has, has heard of, right? Mm -hmm. And they all want to do to be or not to be or, you know, some of the more famous Hamlet speeches. So I always mm -hmm. try to, you know, I, I don't say no, um, but I will say maybe you should look at a different monologue, you know, a lesser mm -hmm. known monologue. But... Uh, I, I, and I also did a reading we, we did um, of Hamlet in my class. We did when COVID hit, we had it on the Zoom thing. And I was like, what am I going to do? And so one of the things I decided to do is let's do a Zoom play reading. Uh, and so we did Hamlet um, and I had everybody play Hamlet. All 12 students rotated playing Hamlet. And it was, you know, it was really interesting to get perspective. But one thing I realized, it's a four hour class. And we didn't make it through Hamlet reading in four hours. <laughs> I mean, I think I could have done that reading for three class periods um, because there was stop and discussion about what's going on here. And um, is Ophelia, you know, what happened to Ophelia? Who did, who did her in? Or, you know, what's Hamlet doing right now? And, um, but it was definitely eye-opening for the students because some of them hadn't read it and some of them were like, hadn't never seen it or heard it or, and, and had just read it. And so many of the comments were like, to, to hear it out loud was really fascinating. Yeah. Jim, I, I, I don't know if we're going to put this on the podcast, but I have, a, I have a different take on it, which is that, you know, I learned, I learned uh, IPA from Judy Moreland at UCLA. And she, um, she, she launched us right into the to be or not to be speech. And we studied it and we all got to speak it and just you know, really enjoy making those words our own. Yeah. You know, I enjoyed at the time, but I really appreciate it now because I never got to play Hamlet on stage and probably, you know, maybe, I don't think anybody else in my class ever got to play. That was my only real time, you know, being able to embody those words. So now I'm thinking, you know, maybe I want to 
offer a class where it's just the great speeches where everyone gets a chance to say all of the great speeches and just enjoy the hell out of that. I would do. I, I would, I, I third that. Yeah. That's delicious. That's my, one of the caveats with the 10 year break that I usually go to when I'm a little tipsy. Cause like, <laughs> who you know who are the hamlets you're gonna miss who are the juliets you're gonna miss who are the mercutios you're gonna miss in a whole 10-year break that might be a little extremist so i'm glad yeah. that that's not gonna happen <laughs> uh <laughs> i feel like we, i feel like we've probably reached the point where in you know in the podcast that we produce we'll probably uh, this is like the postscript but i have but i have more questions i want to ask susan about because um you you are really trained but you you went to Carnegie Mellon, right? A fantastic training, training, okay. and from from by reputation, I didn't, yes. I don't know firsthand. So when you walk onto a when you walk onto a, a television or a film set, and you're you know you're mixing with the other actors, do you feel that that training has served you well? Yes, unequivocally, yes. For me, and not for everyone, but for me, there's a tool shed that I have that I wouldn't have had without the training, right? So especially when I'm dealing with a director who can see through my tricks, there's also a language there where they can go to the technique and say, okay, well, you know, you know, dig into those vowels over there or do a physical language, you know, note that kind of opens up my imagination and there's a shorthand there rather than if you're dealing with someone who maybe doesn't have as many tools because they've maybe trained, but maybe not trained as extensively or, or checked out as many different techniques, then there's a little more work that has to be, that the director often has to do in order to be specific about playing. Um, and that's what I try to get to, right? To keep things playful and elastic. Um, and it's hard because I'm also really serious about my shit. <laughs> so I forget, I'm like, I'm, like, I care a lot. So sometimes I'm like trying to hit a, a target a little bit. So here's my follow-up question. So now with the benefit of hindsight and years of experience in the industry, I mean, you know the kinds of jobs you're getting. You know where, you're, where, you're, where your niche is and where your strengths are. You know when you walk into a casting director's office, the kind of, you know, the kind of role that, that they're going to see you for. My question is, knowing what you know now with the benefit of hindsight, if you had to do it all over again, would you have invested those three or four or whatever, however many years you spent getting advanced training, getting the training, or would you have straight into the business and, and, and started trying to work? Ooh, ooh, that's a sticky question. Um, I... I think I might have le left Carnegie maybe one semester early. Um, mostly because the last semester off, oh God, I'm gonna get so much trouble, that's all right. Uh, the last semester often focuses on your entry into the business. And I found that um, it's more valuable to know who you are, know what you want to do, know the kind of people you want to work with than like having a big splashy entrance into the industry. The industry's not going anywhere. People are always going to be telling stories. 
what's far more important is knowing who you are and know the kind of work you want to do rather than your type or like what you sell or what people want from you. Um, I, it took a long time for me, I think, to know the difference between what people wanted from me and how they saw me versus what I wanted to do. Mm. And I, I think had I left a little bit early, that learning curve would have been a little more, uh, I don't know, what's the version for faster? Quicker, <laughs> Quicker yeah. I would have learned more like, oh, I don't, want, I, I don't actually want to do that. And it's a beautiful relief to let go of what things want, what people want from you rather than be like, well, I don't want to do that. I want to do this. Right. I'm conflicted about it too. I mean, I, I started, I didn't graduate from graduate school until I was almost 28. And so mm. like, uh, the train had left the station really, you know, as far as, you know, certain roles in the industry. Yeah. You know, I'm yeah. just starting. I'm just starting and competing for stuff. And I'm competing against people that have 10 years in, you know, yeah, and all sorts of real. And, but when I look back, I think on those three years that I spent and they were the best three years of my life. I mean, I would not trade them for anything. And if I had a time machine and another $50,000, I could. <laughs> <laughs> but, and I feel like that's the thing, right? It's like everybody's journey really is their own. And like, who knows? what those 10 years would have looked like had they not been in school training. But training, it's an exponential relationship, I feel like. Like the longer we have it in our bodies and we actually use those tools, it just does nothing but support us in whatever we want to do. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that for me, um, I, uh, I went with a very specific focus um, because I didn't go until I was about 26 or 27. I, I think I was mm -hmm. even later than you, Garrett. Um, but one of the things that I, I, when a student asks me or when someone asks me, you know, about grad school, I say, A, know what you're going for, but B, um, don't expect it to be the answer to your career. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people go to, you know, acting programs or schools thinking that, oh, they're going to come out of here and they're going to be, you know, doing all sorts of, you know, wonderful stuff. And that's just not the case, whether you're going to, Carnegie Mellon or Yale or NYU or any of the big ones, as mm -hmm. well as, you know, University of Washington and Texas, um, Montana. So, um, so I think it really does become, but then what you said, Susan, is absolutely 100% true, which is experiencing it and the tools that you gain, the knowledge that you gain, as long as you keep that moving forward and clearly you're trained. I mean, vocally you are, as clear as a bell you're using sounds you're doing all that good stuff that that you spend time in in school doing uh the other way the practical way of looking at it is that you just dedicate three years of your life to improving your tools yeah right um yeah. you know and if left on your own devices you're not going to do that <laughs> 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 you, you, you know, you're not going to spend three years going to voice class and going, ah, oh, you know, it's not going to do it. <laughs> and then with the same people, you know, the idea that doing that with a company and learning a certain group of people in, in that kind of intimate way is yeah. something that I miss dearly. You know, our industry isn't necessarily built to support that right now. It's really difficult, but oh, that kind of knowing your instrument and then looking across someone on the stage and knowing their instrument too. Oh. Right. Oh man, we all miss that right now. Don't oh. we? Yeah. Ah, well, anyway, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Thanks for indulging me with that, you know, doorknob question. No, I love it. I love those questions. Ah, uh, Susan. Thank you. Guys, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been really delightful. Yeah. Yeah. Really have I wish you the best. And now, now when I see you on TV, I'll be like, I know her. Come on. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Hey, she's on our show. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm actually, I'm prepping to get back on set now. So like. For the Netflix? Uh, no, uh, the Netflix joint is over. I somehow managed to book something in the middle of quarantine, which doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a new show on the Oprah Winfrey Network that they're starting. And we're supposed to start shooting in October. Yeah. Fantastic. Susan Hayward, thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's been delightful talking to you. Thank you so much. So grateful for the opportunity to come and share and play a little bit. I appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Thank you, Susan. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare.